Welcome to Impact, a podcast ministry of St. Andrew Lutheran Church in Middleton, Wisconsin. Impact features interviews with gifted Bible teachers that will help you better understand Scripture so it will have a greater impact on your life. The host of Impact is Mark Jenstead, the staff minister for Nurture at St. Andrew. Hi, everyone. This time that you are spending with God's holy word is time well spent. Today we are back into Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 6, a chapter that teaches us that we have been baptized into the death of Christ. We'll learn more about that and more. Let's begin with prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for your word and the faith to believe it. Give us greater understanding and put the truth we learn deep in our hearts. Amen. So thank you folks for being here. I'd like to welcome any of you that are first-time listeners. It's great to have you here. And if you're back for more, some of you are regular listeners, it's great to have you with us today as well. I'd like to ask all of you for your prayers for this podcast ministry and ask for you to introduce it to a friend or family member or maybe a colleague. If you've already done that, thank you for taking part in this ministry. I truly appreciate that. Today I'm in Appleton, Wisconsin at Fox Valley Lutheran High School, and my guest is Pastor Dave Wenzel, who's been here before. Welcome back to Impact. Thank you. It's great to have you here. Um, How long have you been here at Fox Valley Lutheran, FVL? This is my 31st year. 31 years. A long time. And I understand they call you the Rev. They do. They do. I never had a nickname when I was a kid. I wasn't cool enough for a nickname, and (laughs) finally got one when I was 32. Okay, so well, you're the you're the one to ask then about life here at Fox Valley. How's the school year going? The year is going very well. It's uh, nice to be moving on somewhat from COVID. We've been very blessed here, haven't had a shutdown or go virtual, and things are going well. Our enrollment's going up. One of the coolest things just happened uh, within the last week, and it's we had a baptism in chapel for uh, for an international student uh, from China. And a young man who came here with no knowledge of Christianity actually uh, was a student online, virtually, last year, and then has, through that virtual class, uh, the gospel worked in his heart, and he asked to be baptized. Uh, very emotional chapel service yesterday, but what a, what a wonderful example of God's grace. Yeah. Did you get the privilege of baptizing him? I didn't. We used his home pastor, Pastor okay. Frost from Nina, where he attends with his host family. Uh, as usual, so often, what, what is very beneficial is when the host family are also strong Christians, such great role models for the young man. Uh, so he did the baptism, and Pastor Krause, our international uh, class pastor, was the one that presided. But how many international students are at FVL? This year, we're at 35. In the past, we've been at 50. Uh, that was pre-COVID. I don't know if we'll ever get back to 50, but what, what a blessing. You know, when Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, and baptizing them, of course, but, but that now so many nations come to us in our, in our backyard, whether it's my backyard neighbor from a different country or now students that come here. And honestly, they don't come here for a Christian education. They come here for an American high school diploma. But then God says... I know why you think you're here, but this is why you're here. Uh, what a blessing. And they stay at host families? Yes. Very nice. Well, we're going to talk about baptism today as uh, Paul gets into that here in Romans chapter 6. Before we get into the specifics of this chapter, Pastor, uh, you've taught Romans right here at FEL for a long time, 
31 years? Yes. The one cl- class I've had. I've had different classes, but Romans I've had from day one. All right. Well, let's let's start with this. Just give us a little bit of a background about this letter to the Romans. Paul wrote this letter when he was in Corinth. It was the end of his third missionary journey, about 55, 56 AD, uh, give or take. And what's unique about this letter compared to so many of his other letters is he's writing it to a church that, first of all, he did not found the church in Rome. And then secondly, he, he hasn't been there at the point where he writes this letter. So he's writing a letter to people that he doesn't know, which, which just makes it a little bit different than his others. reason that there's an 18-verse uh, introduction, 17-verse introduction instead of the usual three or four verses. And then as far as why he wrote it, uh, a, a logistical reason, dear Rome, I'm coming to visit. He wanted to let them know he was looking forward to that visit. Uh, two, he wants to remind them over and over, no difference between Jew and Gentile. And he's writing to both because there are Jewish converts and there are Gentile Christians in this congregation. I find that very relevant today because of how polarizing race is in our country. Uh, a little different with Jew, Gentile as far as race or ethnicity, but a lot of great applications for our students. And then, then the main reason I would say to give that church a better understanding of, of the gospel, God's plan, how to get them to heaven, and justification. Uh, why am I just? Why am I right in God's eyes? All right, thank you. That's a great summary of this book. Pastor, some would say that Romans is the most important book in Scripture. How would you respond to that? I'm going to deflect that question, and I'll go to somebody far smarter than me, Martin Luther. Martin Luther said that if you could only save two books of the Bible, he said if a tyrant should succeed in destroying all the Bible except the book of John and the book of Romans, he said to be enough there to get you to heaven, enough for Christianity to be saved. Uh, what, a, what, a, what a great illustration. And, and so how does that apply? I tell the students this, that, that if somebody's on death row and you get to go visit them and, and they have no knowledge of Christianity and you have limited time, you take them a Bible, you, you wouldn't say, why don't you start with Deuteronomy? Uh, you wouldn't say, well, start with Lamentations, and you get to the middle, you'll find that little gospel nugget. But you start with John, and by the third chapter, what do they find? John 3.16, right? Uh, you give them the book of Romans, and, and the gospel, it just oozes gospel. So would I say it's the most important? I would say it's my favorite. We'll, we'll go with that. And such valuable stuff. So now the application for students, and, and, and I think for any of us, when you have a, a friend or a coworker, someone you're trying to share your faith with, and you know that the Bible is God's means of grace, you know that that is the tool you want to use. To give them a Bible and say, start reading is so tough. Try saying, let's read three chapters of John and let's have a cup of coffee next week. We'll talk about it. Or start them in the book of Romans. Just two great places to start. John and Romans. Yes. I had never heard that before from Luther. Thanks for sharing. Well, you've taught from this book for 31 years, but... I think I can answer the question I'm going to ask for you. You still learn, don't you, as you study this book? All the time. Another Luther quote about Romans, he said, it's the very purest gospel, and you can never, you can never read it too often. And the more often you read it, the better it tastes. Uh, that's Luther writing 500 years ago. And he asked the students, why would you read a book more than once or see a movie more than once? Some of us can recite dialogue from a movie uh, by heart. And, of course, their number one answer is because they enjoy it. But then also because you learn more that you missed the first time. And, and yeah, three decades of teaching Romans, and every semester there is some nugget that either I've missed 
or I didn't quite have that same take, or all of a sudden in the last three years the word pandemic is part of a vocabulary that I that word really wasn't in there before, right? Uh, that that and then students students share stories that it keeps coming to life because it is living and active. Okay, so you find new applications and so forth. So we're going to talk about chapter six in. Romans. So folks, you can open up your Bibles if you're able to Romans chapter 6. Otherwise, when you have time, open it up and read this entire chapter. We're going to kind of cherry pick some of the verses here and talk about the big topics in this chapter with Pastor Wenzel here at Fox Valley Lutheran. So let's begin here. Paul's addressing a concern of some in view of this teaching about the grace of God as the chapter begins. Basically, if sin is so easily forgiven, and it is uh, from our perspective, what will prevent people from living sin-filled lives? So in other words, can I just sin and sin and sin? If, if my sin is going to activate God's grace in my life, uh, can I keep sinning? And Paul says, by no means. That's where it starts. Paul is the, the king of rhetorical questions, especially in the book of Romans. It's a great, great teaching technique. And, and it is so accurate that so many, including every Christian with a sinful nature, which is all of us, that there's a temptation to abuse God's grace. When, when, when Luther, when God used Luther to trigger the Reformation, that was a quick accusation that, that Catholics had. Well, if, 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 if grace is really grace and it's free grace, well, then people will abuse that grace. Well, the answer is yes. Yes, we will because of our sinful nature. But me abusing God's free grace doesn't make God's grace non-existent or, or not free and obviously not valuable. When Paul says, well, wh wh why should we keep on sinning? By no means. Well, why by no means? Because now as a child of God, I, I live for God and, and, and not for myself. My motivation is my love for God. I, I find this, I have a hard time when, when I'm talking about Romans, not seeing those 17, 18-year-olds in front of me and, and the struggles that they have, and, and so, so many wear their sins on their sleeve, if you remember what it's like to be th th that age, and all of those temptations they face and all of that pushback against authority and, and, and curfews and training rules and whatever else. And, and the temptation is, but I know I'm forgiven, so what's the big deal about sin? I am 61, and Satan still tells me that. You're, you're forgiven, my goodness, you're a pastor, you deal with God's word, you know God's grace, so what's the big deal if you sin? Well, the big deal is sin always damages faith, always damages faith. It never does anything good for me. That's the, the, the law aspect of it. And then the gospel aspect of it would be, after what Jesus has done for me, it, it, it seems like you said, if sin is so easily forgiven, but it wasn't easy for Jesus. When I realized what Jesus did, what God the Father did by turning his back on his son as he hung on that horrible deathbed, then, then how, why, why would I say, oh, thanks, Jesus, and, and now let me slap you in the face as I turn my back on you and I, I, I go sin again? What about this quote, Pastor? For a Christian, continuing to live in sin is not only impermissible, it is impossible. That's a great quote. Not only impermissible, but also impossible. And it, it's not for a Christian to sin, it's for a Christian to continue to live in sin. So I think the implication of the quote is what you were talking about. I'm forgiven, so I'm just going to live how I live. 
Great. You, you look at you look at verse three. Paul says, uh, verse two: We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Paul isn't saying you will never sin again, but living in sin, which if I could just digress a second, so often. Living in sin is, is viewed as, well, a sin against the sixth commandment, right? And certainly, if I'm living in sin with somebody I'm not married to, that applies. But, but any unrepentant sin is living in that sin. What Paul means is you won't continue in it. You are repentant. You beg God for forgiveness. And you also then, with all sincerity, say, God, here is my struggle. Please, God, help me overcome that sin. I want to share another quote. When I was studying this chapter for our visit today about Romans chapter 6, I came across this, uh, an American poet, early 20th century. I'd never heard of him. W.H. Auden is his name. Here's the quote. He says, I like committing crimes. God likes forgiving them. Really, the world is admirably arranged. I have not heard that quote, but uh, I, I share that when I'm teaching Romans, that some would say, hey, God enjoys forgiving sins. That makes God's day. I sin. It's doing God a favor. And, and that is, is just, that's the height of arrogance to say that I'm doing God a favor by, by sinning. Uh, scripture is filled with plenty of examples of the consequences of sin. If nothing else, that's always a good reminder, right? What benefit, Paul comes to that later on, what benefit did you reap at that time when you were a slave to sin? And, and the answer is none, none at all. Uh, it's never worth sinning just because God will forgive me. Most of us, if not all of us, have had somebody in our past, probably mom or dad, say, well, I hope you've learned from this mistake. But would any of us say it was worth making the mistake to learn from it? Not, not when it's something serious. We'd say, I wish I would have avoided that mistake in the first place. Yeah, ironically, when it comes to a quote like that, you know, this person probably would say, I've, I've figured it out. But the irony is they're about as far from figuring it out as could be with, with an attitude like that. They're just buying into Satan's lie. In the text, I want to look at uh, verse 3. I think it's verse 3, but this idea that Paul says that we have been baptized into Jesus' death. What does that mean to be baptized into Jesus' death? My, my baptism connects me to Jesus and everything Jesus has done for me. I had a professor at the seminary, Professor Armin Panning, uh, President Armin Panning, now enjoying a crown of life in heaven. And, and he said when he taught Romans, he would stand in front of you with his Greek Bible and teach right from the Greek text. And, and he said, I remember writing it down, that, that a Christian's baptism is their own personal Holy Week event. Uh, all rolled into a less than one minute actual baptism rite, correct? So I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And that, that is my participation in Jesus' death on Good Friday, his burial, and then his resurrection. Verse 4, Paul says, We too may live a new life. So here Paul puts us alongside Jesus in living a new life. What is new about our lives with Christ? God willing, there is a newness in my behavior. But I think what can be confusing is many people look at a good friend, a neighbor who is not a Christian, and their outward behavior is no different than the Christian's behavior in, in a positive way. 
they reciprocate kindness, they reach out to you, they help you when you're gone. But but the new life, the difference is the motivation. That that that's the true difference is that what I now do, I do out of love for God and my neighbor, and not just love for my neighbor. That what I do is is my act of worship for God, my sacrifice for to God. And that, that God takes that and he smells that as a pleasing aroma to God, even though my good works will always be tainted by sin. All right, I'm going to jump ahead here, Pastor, uh, to verse 9. It talks about death no longer having mastery over Jesus. In other translations, the word used for mastery, instead of mastery, is control. I've also seen dominion. Death no longer has that over Jesus. Isn't it true that death never had mastery over Jesus? I'm thinking of like John chapter 10, no one takes my life from me. I I give my life up. He gave his life up on the cross. It says he gave up his spirit. This is this is that that uh, very difficult concept of Good Friday, that that God died. God was up in heaven, and yet God is on the cross, and 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 God dies. Death mastery. I like maybe rule or dominion. That death did take Jesus' life from him. He didn't. He didn't voluntarily stop breathing. He voluntarily went to the cross. But if a medical examiner with today's technology and and understanding would have done an autopsy, they would have said cause of death, crucifixion, suffocation, whatever the word would have been, it wouldn't have been suicide. So Jesus willingly went to the cross, but death took his life from him. All right, I want to read verse 10. It says, the death he died, that's of course Jesus, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. First of all, that idea that he died once for all, that's a pretty important verse, isn't it? Just just a huge verse and, and such a comfort that, that he died one time and there are no more repeated sacrifices of Jesus uh, on a cross or in a sacrament that he died once for all, and the for all, for, for all people. Every sin is paid for. Judas, who, who tragically kicks his faith to the curb and ends up in hell, his sin of betrayal on Monday, Thursday was paid for on Good Friday. He just did not have faith in that forgiveness. That, 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 that's an important concept. And, and then the second thing you hit on there, so he, he lives to God. So how did Jesus live to God? I think of John chapter 4 and Jesus talking with a Samaritan woman at Jacob's well, and she runs back to town and says, Look, guess, guess who I met? This is what he knew about me. Could he be the Messiah? The disciples come and, and say, do you want some food? And, and this was Jesus' quote. He said, uh, the food I, I have to eat is to do the will of my father. And they can't figure out what he's, what he's talking about. They say, did somebody bring him food? His, his food was to do the will of the one who sent him. And then in John 6, the bread of life discourse, the same thing. I've come down from heaven not to do my will, to do the will of the one who sent me. And then the very next phrase is, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. So Jesus uh, living a life to God, and then it says in the same way, we do the same thing, that 
kind of ties back a little bit to verse four, that new life. Yes, he keeps going back to that. It's interesting in Romans that that the early chapters are over and over and over justification, and he weaves that in throughout the whole book. But now he's getting to in six, seven, and eight some some lives of sanctification. So God's done this for me. Now what? Well, the now what is what a blessing that I live my life to God and for God. And then we go to verse 12, and it seems to me, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but he's going back again to the beginning of the chapter. The, the chapter begins, as you mentioned, with one of these, uh, two of these rhetorical questions that are all over Paul's epistle here in Romans. Uh, the epistle begins with these verses. What are these questions? What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Verse 12, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you will... Uh, so that you obey its evil desires. It seems like he's answering that question. He, he does, and you're correct. It goes back to verse 4 as well. So over and over again, he is addressing the temptation to abuse God's free grace. So why would I let sin rule me when Jesus has freed me from that reign of sin? That's a lifestyle that, a lifestyle that the devil likes, a philosophy that the devil likes. You mentioned earlier that sin always damages faith playing right into the devil's hands with that philosophy. I think a, a, a mistake that, that I can make as a, a high school teacher, but that anybody can make, maybe a parent as well, is that there are certain sins that are so dangerous, and, and, and as long as we can keep our, our, our students, teenagers, uh, young people from committing really gross sins, uh, obvious sins like uh, sexual immorality, or drug abuse, or whatever it might be, they avoid those sins, and then everything's going to be okay. Satan's goal for the hundred students that I have in front of me in Romans every day, his Satan's goal is not that he gets them to break training rules, or that they have sex before marriage, or that they cheat on a Romans quiz. That's not his number one goal. His number one goal is to pull them away from their Savior. And, and Satan will use anything he can to start eating at their faith. Uh, Satan realizes that it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And, and he will do anything he can to slowly weaken somebody's faith. Back to the text, I'm looking at verse 14. Paul writes, For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. Can you tell us the difference there, Pastor? You are not under law, but you are under grace. First glance, that might almost seem like a law passage. For sin shall not be your master, right? Don't let sin master you. Just say no. Just say no to sin. Well, that, that, that's law. But then what does he say? Because you're not under law. You are under grace. You're under, you're under the umbrella of God's grace. And, and, and it's, it's, I tell the students, it's not one of those travel umbrellas that your mom folds up and puts in her glove box or underneath the front seat. This is like the mother of all beach umbrellas of God's grace. It covers all of me all the time. Or a Professor Brug analogy is, is God's grace is a never-ending monsoon. I don't sin during the day, step outside of God's grace, and then at night I jump into the shower of God's grace and I'm okay for the evening. It's a never-ending, never-ending monsoon of God's grace. What's wrong with this motivation, Pastor? Um, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do that because I'm afraid of the punishment. 
What's wrong with that motivation? In and of itself, it's, it's using the law as a curb. So I don't know that it would necessarily be wrong. If that's my only motivation, that's a problem because, because Satan and the world have come up with ways to avoid the consequence. So how do you avoid the consequence of sex outside of marriage? You practice safe sex. The pregnancy isn't the sin. God would say it's the act of sex that's the sin. Avoiding the consequence. We're going to go out tonight. We'll make sure we have a designated driver so the rest of us can get as drunk as we want. It's not driving drunk that is only the sin. It is drunkenness. So if that's all I'm doing is using that as a curb, unfortunately, my sinful nature and Satan will find a way for me to skirt that. But the law as a curb is still a very important use for my sinful nature. All right, thanks. Uh, great clarification for us. And verse 15, another rhetorical question. And I actually wrote this down, Pastor. Uh, I have the number here, 74 in parentheses. And I've been trying to think, why did I write that down? I just remembered. Someone once counted them up, I think. That's, that's the number of rhetorical questions in Romans. Does that sound right? That sounds right. I gave that as an extra credit assignment once, and I think that was the most common answer. 74. 74. Well, there's another one at the beginning of verse 15. I'll read that for you. What then? Or I guess there's two here. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? There's that phrase again, by no means, with an exclamation point. And I know that's not in in the, in the Greek, that exclamation point, but it's there for a reason, right? By no means. Paul's back to using that uh, as an answer. I think of this verse, Pastor, um, in Galatians, another verse of Paul. He says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. Is that a fair application to pull that verse in here? I, I think that is, that is very relevant, that when I begin to think that I can sin as much as I want, that I am mocking God and the sacrifice that God's Son made for me. The next section here, Pastor, Paul calls Christians slaves, slaves to righteousness. Why does he use that metaphor? I think there's a, there are multiple answers there. Part of it is that first century A.D., his audience understood the concept of slavery. They saw it in front of them every day. Perhaps some of them owned slaves. Perhaps some of them were former slaves. So it, it, it's, 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 it's relevant. It's applicable. I think one of the challenges for us today is we hear slavery and we identify it with the atrocities in our country and our country's history with slavery. By no means, I'm using Paul's phrase there, by no means am I implying that first century slavery was a God-pleasing thing. But he's using an illustration that, that did make sense to them. And when you look at what Paul says, if, if you will, he says in, in verse 16, you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as a slave. You're either slaves to the one whom you, you're slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. So then in, in, in 17, he says, you used to be slaves to sin. Now 18, you become a slave to righteousness. There are only two options here. It's only A and B. I am a slave to sin or I'm a slave to God. And so many people would say, oh, no, 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 no. That's not a good question because you're missing the correct answer. The correct answer is C, neither of the above. Or the correct answer is D, I'm a slave to myself. 
or E, I'm a slave to no one. But as soon as I say I'm a slave to myself or I'm a slave to no one, what I'm really going with, unfortunately, is I am a slave to sin. I'm a slave to Satan. All right, I want to make sure that uh, I have this, our listeners have this. Forgive me if I'm being redundant here. We talk about, as God's children, that we have been set free. We've been set free. And as I read verse 18, it says, You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. So we go from being set free, and now we're back to a slave. But being a slave to righteousness is a good thing. Someone put it this way, Pastor. I can't help but follow God in light of the gospel. This is where it's difficult for us to make that leap from our negative perception of slavery to a positive perception of slavery. I am a slave to God. So what does that mean? Who owns me? Well, it's God. it's, It's pretty well established that after the Civil War, after the Emancipation Proclamation Act, Lincoln declares all slaves free, the war is fought, the North wins. There were some slaves that, given their choice, wanted to go back to their former owners, not because that's all they knew, although that was perhaps it for some, but but some of those former slave owners had treated their slaves more as extended family, or at least as employees. And they provided for them, and they gave them shelter, and they gave them health care as rudimentary as it was, and they provided for them. They had to work for it. Here, here it's different. God is my slave, my, my owner. I'm his slave. God takes perfect care of every one of my needs, and I don't have to work for what God has done for me. God knows all of my needs and God provides for them. He is the perfect owner. So I want to say, yes, God, please God, own me. I'm going to jump ahead here to the last verse in this chapter. And I realize we're we're skipping over some really good verses, but um, I do want to make sure we uh, sit with verse 23 a little bit. This is a verse that uh, a lot of Christians know. Uh, it might have been one of the first verses I memorized as a little boy in Sunday school. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. One of my favorite words, Pastor, in Scripture is but. And here's here's a classic use of that word in this passage. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And there's, there's a lot of opposites going on in this verse, Pastor. The opposite between wages and gift the opposite between sin and God, between death and life. Um, tell us something about this verse. It's a, it's a great evangelism passage because what do, what do we need when we're sharing, we're sharing our faith with someone? We need to convince them that there is a disease that's called sin. And this passage shows them that the wages of sin is death. Pair that up with, with Romans 3, another passage from Romans. For who has sinned? All. For all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. Chapter 6, and the wages of those sin, those sins, it, it's, it's death. But then the but, as you said, but the gospel is, but God's gift, not a gift I worked for, paid for, or even chose out of the Fleet Farm catalog. The gift of God, the free gift, unexpected gift, is eternal life in Christ Jesus. It is a, a go-to law gospel passage in any conversation that we would have with someone who is struggling with I'm not sure who I am. Am I really that bad? Or I am so bad, now what? It, it, it just covers it. And when it says the wages of sin is death, 
Can we take that to mean we're talking spiritual death, which is our relationship with God. We're talking eternal death, ultimately, uh, and of course, physical death. Is it more than one or is it, is it all three of those? The answer is yes. I would, I would say that, that ultimately the, the most dangerous death I face would be eternal death. But my spiritual death would lead to that, right? And then the bottom line is we will all die unless Jesus returns before the day of our death. Adam and Eve don't sin, they never face death. We, we, we will never, no matter how much we manage to extend the lifespan of, of anybody here on earth, we will, we will never escape the consequence of sin, which is physical death. And it's only through Jesus that I escape the consequence of eternal death. And then what a blessing for a Christian that God says, Whoever believes in me will never die. I will never die spiritually. And when my body is in the ground, it too will come back to life when, when Jesus returns. So here's one I could have shared earlier. Luther said that grace makes the law dear to us. Now you go back to the beginning of the chapter. When, when grace makes the law dear to us, my new man never has this thought that I'm just going to keep on sinning because my sin will be forgiven. I see that law in a completely different light through grace. And that's the point of the Luther quote. I'll give you the final word. Great, great quote and, and a great reminder that the law serves a purpose. Uh, and, and as a Christian, I don't bristle under the law, but I look at that and say, so God, this is the guide you have given me for me to live my life. Uh, this is this is my spiritual GPS. Why, why would I question? Why would I question that? And and what a blessing that God's GPS is is always accurate. Doesn't have you end up in a cornfield someplace because it's not been updated. But I found the hard way that sometimes I think my instincts, I'll ignore the GPS. And my wife would tell you, yeah, shame on David that he ignored the GPS because we ended up going the wrong way. <laughs> God's GPS will never steer me wrong, even though Satan is screaming at me, screaming at me, no, 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 no. This would be better. You know better. No, God, God always knows better. And just to have complete reliance on that GPS, that direction that God gives me. All right, Pastor. Well, I think there's uh, 16 chapters in Romans, right? There are. And so now in a year and a half, uh, we've covered three of them on impact. We've done Romans 5, Romans 8, and now today Romans 6. So we still have 13 to go. So can we bring you back at some point, do would, another I chapter? Would, I would be honored. All right, very good. Well, you have a, a good close to your school year here at Fox Valley Lutheran, and may God continue to bless you and your ministry. Thank you, and may God bless the ministry of impact as well. And thank you. Thank you, folks, for listening. Until next time, God's grace be with you. Thank you for listening to Impact, a podcast ministry of St. Andrew Lutheran Church in Middleton, Wisconsin. Our email address is impact at st-andrew-online.org. That's impact at st-andrew-online.org. Please tell your friends and family about Impact and pray for this ministry. Impact is new every Monday and all past episodes are available. The better you understand scripture, the greater impact it will have on your life.